The New York Times calls him one of the most influential and provocative figures in modern psychology. Irreverent and charismatic, he was called the Lenny Bruce of psychotherapy. Who is this man? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Arthur Freeman. Dr. Freeman worked with Dr. Ellis in New York for more than 30 years and knew him as a student, then a colleague, and a close friend and associate. Dr. Freeman is visiting professor at Governor State University in Chicago and chair emeritus and professor of psychology at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. In addition, he is director of the psychology department of Sheridan Shores Rehabilitation Hospital and the president of the Freeman Institute for Cognitive Therapy and director of training and supervision for the Center for Brief Therapy in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome, Dr. Freeman. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you certainly have a lot of experience dealing not only with Dr. Ellis, but cognitive behavioral therapy and with healthcare professionals. What can you help us in terms of incorporating the work of Dr. Ellis into what we do in our daily lives? Well, I think the most important element that uh, Al taught us was the willingness to take risks. He took a huge risk by battling, really battling, the psychoanalytic establishment, and starting a new model, a new trend of psychotherapy that has been very successful, that he took a personal risk, he walked a path that really had not been well-trod before, and really was, I know they call him irreverent, he was certainly charismatic, uh, but he did things that got him into trouble. He worked, example, for example, with Kinsey. My God, talking about sex, this was bound to get him into trouble. That he worked on developing the Kinsey Report. He talked about marital work. He talked about sex in the 50s and 60s when nobody talked about these things publicly. He was irreverent. He used words that people weren't used to hearing. Some four-letter Anglo-Saxon words. <laughs> I interviewed him about 10 years ago. We videotaped an interview, and I asked him about that. I, and he said, because that's the language I use myself, that that's the way people think. And he was very clever in using words. You know, there were their imperatives, should, must, ought. And he, he had uh, T-shirts made up at the Institute, and listeners can contact the Institute and buy a T-shirt that says, masturbation is self-abuse. <laughs> The idea that we have these imperatives as opposed to preferences. So it's not, I must do well, but it would be nice if I did well. And if I don't, the world won't come to an end. It won't stop spinning on its axis. But I'd like to be successful. So the idea was to change the way people viewed things. An important change was asking a different question. Uh, for example, uh, given that many of your listeners are primary care providers, here's a, a really interesting question. Not why are you feeling this way, but what keeps you feeling this way? Not why, because that implies the deep historical search that the Freudians were after. That if only we could dig down through successive layers, we'd get to the why. And once you had the why, then problems would disappear. The question that he encouraged was, what keeps me stuck? What keeps me doing the same things? 
thinking the same things, feeling the same ways, day after day, week after week, year after year. It's a different question that one of the criticisms of his work was that when he saw patients, he seemed to move terribly quickly. When everyone was taught in school, it takes multiple sessions before you can dare to make an intervention. I would make interventions in the first five minutes. And he did it because he believed that there are three main beliefs people have. And all the problems people have are the result of one of these beliefs or some combination. The imperative, I must do things well. Second, you must treat me in a particular way. And third, the world must give me what I think I want. Rather than saying it would be nice if I was successful, it would be nice if you were nice to me, and it would be nice if the world did provide me with what I want, but as we go through life demanding this, we're invariably going to fail. One of my favorite quotes from Dr. Ellis was uh, what he said about neurosis, that he said it was just a high-class word for whining. Right, right. <laughs> so, that he called neurosis stupid behavior on the part of non-stupid people. Hmm. He'd say, you know better. Why are you continuing to do this when you know better? What keeps you stuck? And he would say to people, you know, you're whining. And, of course, other therapists would say, my God, you're insulting people. And I think Al demonstrated over years that he helped more people than he insulted. <laughs> you can certainly see how some of the more uh, kind of celebrity people, I'm thinking of Dr. Phil, uh, might have gone to the Dr. Ellis Institute, huh? <laughs> well, uh, many, did. many did take Al's work. For example, uh, in his book, Erroneous Zones, Wayne Dyer uh, basically took Albert Ellis's work to talk about erroneous thinking. Uh, Al, uh, Ellis's work is really a scene throughout cognitive behavior therapy. One of the mistakes, though, which I think is really tragic, Al was a kid brought up in the Bronx. He's a Bronx kid. He went to City College, City University of New York, uh, went to Teachers College, Columbia. He's a Bronx kid. And people have always associated, well, if you're going to do REBT, you've got to sound like him or look like him. Mm. And it would, that's his style. That's the way he spoke growing up in the Bronx. I know I grew up in the Bronx. And it took me a long time to get rid of uh, the accent I had. <laughs> I'm and, not so sure about that, Art. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If it's showing, I better go back to work. But it, there's no question people say to me, you're from the East. Are you from New York? But I don't say I'm from the Bronx, I'm from New York, but I do say chocolate. <laughs> and people would say, well, I can't do REBT because I can't do what Ellis does or say what Ellis says. And the model is bigger than the man. Now, Dr. Freeman, clearly your professional work has been profoundly influenced by Albert Ellis. Absolutely. How about just in terms of knowing him as, as a man and as a friend? He was, for me and for many others, a mentor par excellence. He was giving, he was open, he was sharing. Several occasions I did, I would do a book and I would ask Al, as busy as he was, and he was very busy, published 60 books and hundreds of papers, 
and I call him up and say, Al, could you contribute a chapter to this book I'm doing? He never said no. As far as I know to me or anybody else, that he had written uh, reviews of books I've done. And he was really available. I could call him up and say, Al, there was a study done in the middle to late 70s, I think, and he was just encyclopedic in his knowledge. He'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a study done by Smith, Green, and White. It was published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. Uh, what they found was this, but there were some flaws in the study because it had a very small number of subjects. I mean, he was brilliant. His conceptualizations were brilliant, and he was the only term I could think of is a term that comes from the Bronx. He was truly a mensch, hmm. a real person. There was no pretense about Al. What you saw, <laughs> what you saw is what there was. Now, of course, he, he recently passed away at the age of 93. Did he continue working up until his, his later years? Oh, yes. He, the last year was not a good year for him. It was a very, you know, he was very, very ill in the last year. But prior to that time, he was doing classes. He'd meet with students. He would do demonstrations. There was one instance where he had a heart attack in the morning and uh, had a class discussion uh, later that day. Oh, my gosh. That he was a model for many, many, many people, for many therapists, for many psychologists, many psychiatrists, he really was someone to emulate, not in his personal style necessarily, or his, uh, you know, mode of dress. His mode uh, of dress? How did he yeah, dress? Yeah, I, I think Al hadn't bought a new sport jacket since about 1968. <laughs> he didn't care. If you looked and say, boy, that's a, that's a, you know, a 1960 sports jacket, he'd say, who cares? Doesn't bother him. But he was a real person and would respond in a real way, that he did not suffer fools gladly, that he really, uh, he called a spade a spade. Now, wasn't there some issue in the last few years with the Institute and, and that they basically kicked him out of his own Institute? Well, you know, I was on the outside to that, and I've heard all the stories and gotten stories from the inside that I, I think much of what happened had to do with the fact that there were a number of people that were very close to him, that he trained, that he helped develop, that he mentored, that were waiting in the wings to take their rightful place at the head of the movement. And this irascible old man wouldn't die. So they're getting older and older, and there were issues from, let me give it from Al's perspective, that they felt he was personally a liability since people were saying, well, you know, we don't like his style, trying to move the Institute away from REBT to a more mainline CBT. So they essentially fired him from the board, uh, would not let him do his Friday night demonstrations, that there were issues around finances, there were issues around you know, too much money for medical expense, and somehow they were going to lose their tax-exempt status because of that. And I have no idea of the reality of those charges. I, I don't know. I was not privy to that. 
the uh, members of the board of the Institute wanted to trademark his name. And he said, hey, it's my name. <laughs> so I, I don't know all the details, but the uh, Supreme Court of New York settled it and said, what you guys did was wrong and uh, reinstated him. But it, was, it remained to his death strained relationships. It was not pretty, and it was unfortunate. Well, thank you so much for helping us learn a little bit more about Albert Ellis today, Dr. Freeman. It's been my pleasure. I've uh, enjoyed that. We've been discussing one of the most intriguing and iconoclastic professionals of our time, Dr. Albert Ellis, with Dr. Arthur Freeman. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 